invite you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 8 through 9 through 11. Uh, but I want to begin reading back in verse 5. Romans 8, verse 5. Hear now God's word. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful passage in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the way it reminds us of who we are, of what our identity is in Jesus Christ, what our identity is as those who are in the Spirit. We pray, God, that as this word would be opened, that you, Lord, would open it to us, that you would speak to us. God, we say this morning that our mouths are opened wide, and we pray, O oh God, that you would fill them, that you would fill us with all the riches of grace that are ours in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This past week, I had the opportunity with my boys to see the remake of my favorite childhood movie, The Lion King. And uh, children, you're, you're all familiar with the story. Simba, the, the main character, is uh, betrayed tragically by his evil uncle, Scar. He ends up running away from the kingdom that is rightfully his. And, and he, he ends up in the wilderness where, where he uh, stumbles upon a, a warthog and a meerkat who teach him to live a kuna matata, to live a life of no worries. And uh, Simba embraces this. He, he embraces a carefree life in the jungle. 
All the while, his kingdom, the kingdom that he is responsible to care for and protect, is being ravaged by evil. This continues on until the the climactic scene of the movie. Uh, Simba is at the height of his indifference, and then one night, he encounters his deceased father. His father speaks to him and says these words, four words, remember who you are. Simba had forgotten who he was. He had forgotten that he was the rightful king of this territory, that he was responsible to to care for these animals. But in this moment, hearing the, the voice of Mufasa booming from the heavens, he's forcefully reminded of his identity. And suddenly everything comes into proper perspective. Suddenly he realizes that in the current state of things, Akuna Matata makes no sense. That because of who he is, he has a responsibility to rescue his people, even if it means death. This highlights for us how massively important it is that we have a healthy and a proper self-image, an understanding of who we are. It's dangerous and, and even devastating to forget who we are. Like Simba, we will never fulfill our purpose, the purpose for which God created us, if we do not reckon and come to terms with our identity. A failure to remember who we are leads not only to purposelessness, but, but also hopelessness. It's, it not only causes us to lose sight of why we are here, but it, it causes us to lose sight of where we are going. And I think this is why, at least one reason why, God so consistently reminds us of who we are in the scriptures. This is one reason why we need to be having our noses in this book every day. You and I are are prone to forget who we are. And here in the scriptures, God reminds us of our identity in Jesus. And he's doing that in our text this morning. He's calling us this morning to remember, to remember who we are in Christ. And this is what he is telling us. He's, he's saying that, that as those who belong to Christ, our lives are not what they once were, nor what they one day will be. Our lives are not what they once were, nor what they one day will be. A text before us uh, really breaks up nicely uh, into three sections. First, in uh, verse 9, we see a living union. 
In verse 10, a living tension. And in verse 11, a living expectation. Paul has shown us what life in the flesh looks like in verses 5 through 8. Those who are in the flesh are anti-God. They hate God. They cannot submit unto God's law. They are unable to please God. That is our tragic condition in Adam. All of us here were at one time in the flesh. But Paul, speaking to the church, says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. We are no longer in the flesh. We are in the Spirit. And not only are we in the Spirit, but, but the Spirit is in us. We have a living union with Christ by the Spirit. That's our first point this morning. The Spirit of God here is not an impersonal power. He's not a force or an influence emanating from God. This is God himself. The living God has chosen to take up residence in us. This is utterly astounding. We're, we're so used to talking about these things, to, to hearing these truths that, that they can just kind of wash over us and, and we don't actually sense the significance of, of what is being said here. The living God, the thrice holy, triune, sovereign, self-sufficient, independent God, the God who has no beginning and no end, that God has chosen to make sinful, finite rebels like you and me to be his home, to be his dwelling place. Think about that. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this, God dwelling in us by his spirit, this is the ultimate doctrine and the highest peak of the Christian doctrine of salvation. There, there's, there's no higher for us to get. How, how could it get any better, any more mind-boggling than this? That not only would God save us, but, but he would make us to be his temple, his dwelling place. Could there possibly be anything more glorious than being a Christian? Think about it. Could there be anything that you could think of more glorious than that? The culture derides Christianity. We're told that Christianity is an outdated, narrow, intolerant, miserable religion. And if we're honest, we're, we're sometimes tempted to, to believe this. But friends, let us not forget who we are. To be a Christian is the most astoundingly delightful and soul-satisfying reality in all the world. 
We are the dwelling place of God. God, by His Spirit, is in us. For Paul, the Spirit and Christ are so unified in their saving purposes that for the Spirit to dwell in us is for Christ to dwell in us. You'll you'll notice that if you look at the text, verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, he says, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. And in verse 10, he says, if Christ dwells in you. These are interchangeable realities. Christ being exalted to the right hand of God the Father has poured out the Spirit upon His people. And that's why in the second half of verse 9, Paul calls the Spirit of God the Spirit of Christ. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If we don't possess the Spirit of Christ then Christ does not possess us. If we don't have the Spirit, then Christ hasn't taken us to be our own. We, His own. We are not His people. It's not possible to be a Christian without having the Holy Spirit. But the opposite is equally true. If if the Spirit is dwelling in us, if we possess the Spirit, then, then we know that we are possessed by Christ. Those who are His have the Spirit. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 19, in that that well-known passage, notice as we read this how these two ideas are interrelated and inseparably connected in Paul's thinking. This idea of us being the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit and this idea of us being the possession of Jesus Christ. He says, or do you not know That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Spirit's dwelling in us, and and this is a sign, this is a seal that, that we are not our own. We belong to Jesus. And the fact that we belong to Jesus is the reason why he's given us the Spirit. I've been told that you can make a lot of money flipping houses. You purchase a foreclosed house, maybe it's mold infested, run down, possibly even teeming with rodents, and you completely gut it. New paint, new cabinets, carpet, windows, landscaping, appliances, new everything. And after nine months of hard work, you sell it, and, and you get two or three times what, what you paid for it. In a sense, this is what God is doing here. Christ purchases our sin-infested persons only to do a complete overhaul. But he doesn't radically renovate us just to make a quick buck. He, he doesn't purchase us to flip. He purchases us 
to make us his permanent dwelling place, to make us a holy dwelling place. And our life here on this earth is the process by which he is making us just that, a dwelling place that he will take up residence in for all eternity. Paul's understanding of the Christian life is nothing less than glorious, friends. God himself dwells in us. We dwell in God. We are in the Spirit. The Spirit is in us. It is wonderful. We belong to Jesus. We are his, and he is ours. And yet, I think for, for all of us, the, the ordinary Christian life is often, probably more so than not, less than glorious. It so often doesn't feel glorious. And in fact, it, it can be downright grueling. We can have hearts void of joy in God, being cold and indifferent to spiritual things. We can feel deserted by God as if he's just left us in the dark. We can be overcome by what seem to be insurmountable temptations. We can go through traumatic, long-term suffering, how are we to account for these things? How are we to understand the glories of verse 9 in the light of our present experience, in light of the trials, in the light of the struggles, in the light of the darkness, in the light of the temptation that you and I face day in and day out in this world? Well, Paul tells us, he tells us in verse 10, he explains that this living union with Christ by the Spirit has brought about a living tension. That's our second point, a living tension. Look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ is dwelling in us by his spirit, we have life. Nothing short of resurrection, life. Our dead souls have been made alive. And Paul tells us why this is the case. It's because of righteousness. The spirit is life because of righteousness. What is Paul referring to here? Well, it's obvious that he's not referring to our own righteousness. He's not saying that it's because we've cleaned up our act and become good people that now the Spirit is dwelling in us as life. This is clearly a reference to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ was condemned in our place. He suffered the death that our sin deserved. And, and he was resurrected. And, and that resurrection was his vindication, God's, God's declaration that he was righteous and that God accepted that sacrifice. 
And it's just because of that, just because of Christ's righteous, redemptive labors that he has now poured out his spirit upon us, that the spirit is now at work in us as life. This is why the spirit dwells in you and I if we are Christians, because of Jesus' righteousness. And through the life-giving spirits, we are not what we once were. We who were dead in our sin have been made alive in Jesus Christ. And yet notice that while we have life in the spirit, death is still at work in us. Paul says, although the body is dead, because of sin. You see the tension here? Almost seems like a contradiction. Paul is saying that that because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and, and because the Spirit dwells in us, we have life, resurrection life, and yet we have that life even while the body is dead because of sin. This deadness is the result of sin. Paul, back in Romans chapter 5, told us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and that many died through one man's trespass. That one man is Adam the first. By his sin, he plunged the whole world, all of us, into death and into condemnation. And Paul is saying that that even while the Spirit is in us, this death is still working in our bodies. We're all dying. We live in a a culture that is obsessed with preserving youth and and running from death, but but the reality that Paul is setting before us is that, that all of us are dying. Perhaps you've wondered at times as a Christian how this could be so. How how could it be that a Christian would die? Think about it. We're, We're not in Adam anymore. We're in Christ. The wages of sin is what? Death. But Jesus paid the penalty of our sin in his death on the cross. He died for us. So why do we still die? How do we understand this? Have you ever asked that question? It's a good question. And Paul's answer here is that while we are not what we once were, we are not yet what we will be. Our salvation is both already realized and yet to be realized. Our inner man has been raised with Christ. We've we've been resurrected in our inner being, but we are still awaiting the resurrection of our mortal bodies on the last day. We have resurrection life in the spirit while still in the mortal body. And thus, we we could call ourselves living mortals. 
That's, that's what we are, and that's, that's what Paul is setting before us here. You want to know your identity in Jesus Christ. You're one who has been resurrected, raised up to newness of life in Jesus while still in a mortal body. That's you and me, friends. Nowhere does Paul more clearly explain this than in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 16, he says this. He says, Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. There's a life in the inner man, spirit-renewing resurrection life. In Paul's inner man, he is being renewed day by day. And yet the outer man, what Paul in our text calls the body, is, is wasting away. It's subject to decay, to de- corruption, to death. It has not yet experienced the full effects of salvation in Christ. And this explains Paul's struggle in Romans 7. His inner being, which had been renewed day by day by the Spirit, delights in the law of God. We see that in verse 22, that in his inner being, in his inner man, he's delighting in God's law, desiring to do God's will. He has resurrection life. But there's another principle operative in his bodily members. We see that in verse 23, causing him to do that which he hates. And notice that he very strongly there speaks of his body, of his outer man. The mortal dying body is where sin continues to dwell. And this leads him to cry out in desperation, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's longing for future resurrection. He's longing to put off this mortal body. Why? Because while the inner man has been freed from the law of sin, the outer man is still subject to its influence. He is experiencing this living tension. Paul is not what he once was. By the Spirit, he now delights in God's law and and desires to please God. But he's also not what he one day will be. He struggles with sin. The flesh remains within and it will do so until he puts off this body of death. On June 6, 1944, over 150,000 American, British, and Canadian troops landed on the beaches of Normandy. What were they doing there? Well, they were seeking to bring an end to Nazi tyranny in Europe. That day, through great sacrifice and and courage, they they established a beachhead. And uh, and this day is often referred to as D-Day, and it's referred to by historians as the turning point of World War II. On D-Day, a decisive victory was one that ensured the ultimate defeats of the Nazis. 
But it's important for us to understand that D-Day did not end the war. For almost an entire year, the war waged on. Hitler's regime continued to fight back. A terrible amount of blood was shed. And yet slowly, the Allies pushed back Nazi forces until eventually the Nazis surrendered unconditionally. Hitler had committed suicide and, and his regime had, had lost all hope. And this day of unconditional surrender when, when the Nazis gave up is known as V-Day or Victory Day. Reformed theologian Oscar Coleman once wrote that Christians live between God's D-Day and God's V-Day. God's D-Day occurred at the cross and the empty tomb. Through Christ's death and resurrection, a decisive victory against sin and Satan has been won. Christ defeated the works of the devil upon the cross. He, he trampled upon the head of the serpent. And yet the enemy continues to wage on until God's V-Day until that day when the dead will be raised, when the judgment will occur, and when Satan and his minions will be cast into the lake of fire forever. Friends, we live in the tension between those two days. And it's so vital, vital for us to understand that. We need to understand the tension in verse 10 if we are going to walk in the way that God would have us to in this life. Failure to reckon with this tension can lead to a defeatist mentality. It can lead to, to an unbiblical pessimism. We, we can question the significance of D-Day, since the unconditional surrender of sin and Satan has not yet occurred. We understand the intense struggle with indwelling sin. We understand what it is for the body to be dead because of sin. But we struggle to believe, to believe that the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Failing to grapple with this tension, we downplay the monumental significance of our union with Christ. We understand that we are not what we one day will be, but we forget that we're also not what we once were. If you have this mentality, you will wallow in your sin, lacking the, the joy and, and the confidence needed to wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So failing to reckon with this tension can, can lead to a defeatist mentality, but it, but it can also lead to an unwarranted triumphalism or, or an unbiblical optimism. We, we might relish in our freedom in Christ, but, but are quite oblivious to the battle waging in our souls between the flesh and the spirit. Imagine if the allies, after establishing a beachhead on D-Day, would have thrown down their weapons and declared 
victory. It would have been to their demise. Yes, the ultimate victory was decisively determined, but there were still many battles to be fought to bring it to pass. And similarly, friends, the victory is ours in Christ. But we are still in the midst of war. And this is a war far greater than World War II with foes far fiercer than Nazi Germany and consequences of eternal significance. Yet many of us, many of us are happy-go-lucky Christians just lollygagging our way through this life as if it's a time of peace. And nothing, nothing could be more senseless than that. It is not a time of peace, friends. We are in the midst of war. The flesh wages war against the spirit within. The world seeks to draw us into its vanity. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You and I are behind enemy lines. You don't lollygag behind enemy lines. Paul is calling us here to have a healthy realism when it comes to our self-image. We are not what we once were. We are now alive in the Spirit. But we are not also what we will one day be. While citizens of the heavenly kingdom, we yet remain on this earth. While no longer under the dominion of sin, We yet remain in its domains and are subject to its influence. While raised with Christ, we yet remain in the mortal body, subject to death. V-Day has not yet arrived. It's not yet here. Such realism, however, is not void of optimism. Paul possesses great confidence in the face of this tension. We we saw that back in Romans chapter 7. Having cried out, who will deliver me from this body of death? He immediately declares, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we see that in, in our passage as well. That this living union which has brought about a living tension gives way to a living expectation. Look at verse 11 with me. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If the Spirit is dwelling in us now, that that Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if He dwells in us, then, then we can be confident 
of future bodily resurrection. The Father who raised Christ from the dead by the Spirit will do the same to us. He will give life. Listen to this. He will give life to our mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in us. On that great day, the tension will be no more. No more tension. The outer man will no longer be decaying. Sin will no longer be present in the mortal body. We will no longer do what we hate. We will no longer possess rival loves to the Lord. There will no longer be spiritual lethargy in our souls. We will no longer have the fleshly inclinations to pride and envy and greed and sexual immorality and anger and the like. There will no longer be temptation or even the possibility of such. No more warfare, no more striving, no more struggling, no more suffering, no more sin. No more. If you belong to Christ, if His Spirit dwells in you, then at His coming, you will be raised bodily, never to perish again. Now, why would Paul tell us this here? Why, why would Paul tell us about our future resurrection? What, what significance does this possibly have for us living here in this tension? I think there's, there's a number of things that could be said here. I want to close this morning just with two. Uh, first, this, this living expectation of, of future resurrection it encourages us to persevere in this present tension. We find ourselves in the midst of the battle of the ages. Hitler and his regime are set upon our destruction. But what a blessed assurance we have. What a blessed assurance is ours. Jesus is ours. And God has raised him by the Spirit, exalted him to the highest place. He has gained the victory. And if he has been raised imperishably, so will all those who belong to him. This, this ought to steal our souls with courage in the battle. The captain of our salvation has gone before us. The victory is certain. Maybe you're weighed down this morning with the, the sorrows and, and struggles of living in a fallen world. You're, you're tired of the fight with sin, tired of failing, tired of suffering, tired of living in a body of death in a world of death. The text this morning, Paul, the Holy Spirit this morning, is calling you to turn your eyes heavenward, to look up. Behold the Son of Man reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is risen, friends. Do we, do we believe it? Jesus is risen 
from the dead. And he is now at the place that is above all power and rule and dominion and authority. And where he is, you and I, if we are in him, if his spirit is in us, we will one day be there. We will be there with him. We have assurance of this. And so look to him this morning. Take comfort from where he is. Take comfort from his glorified humanity at the right hand of God. Second, this present uh, tension that we find ourselves in. Uh, we, we learn from this expectation of future resurrection that in this present tension, we should be devoting our bodies to God's service now. If your destiny is to have a body perfected in glory, conformed perfectly to Christ's, then you should be subjecting that self-same body to God's service now. Paul tells us this all over the place in his letters. Back in Romans chapter 6, he says, Let not sin therefore reign. Where? In your mortal body. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your bodily members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That's us, brought to life in the mortal body. And we're to be presenting those mortal bodies to God because they belong to Him. Your body, my body, they do not belong to us. We are not our own. We, we belong to another. And, and this, this foretaste, this, this picture of future bodily resurrection, which Christ is graciously setting before us in the Word this morning, calls us. It, it ought to impel us to give ourselves body and soul in life in death, all that we are, all that we have to Him. Does it not want... Does it not make you want to serve such, such a Savior? One, one who has come so low to bring us so high. Who became infinitely poor so that we might become infinitely rich. It should be our great joy and delight to give ourselves to Him. Friends, we cannot afford to forget who we are in Christ. We cannot afford to forget it. Let us live in the joy that if we belong to Jesus, we are not what we once were. And we are not yet what we will be. Let's pray. Lord, what an awesome salvation we have in Jesus. Lord, we come to a passage such as this and confess that we know next to nothing of the glory that is here. 
Lord, we have but scratched the surface. I have but stammered and stuttered trying to to get my, my lips to even begin to articulate the glory of what it is to be a Christian, of what it is to be in Christ, of what it is to be in the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would, you would come and that you would open our minds, that you would help us to grasp these things, these things that are beyond grasping in some sense. Lord, open our minds to the glory of all that is ours in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.